So we mentioned Pentecost, and that story, if you want to read it later on, can be found in the book of Acts chapter 2. It's the coming down of the Holy Spirit onto the 12, well, at that point, yeah, there were 12 because they'd thrown dice to pick the 12. Uh, 12 disciples turned apostles, and in it has one of my favorite details in all of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit comes down with a mighty wind, and tongues of fire dance upon their head, and suddenly these people could speak all sorts of languages that they had no business knowing. And they go out, and they start preaching the gospel to all of the gathered crowd, and the crowd responds with, you all must be drunk. And then Peter's defense, he stands up, and his defense isn't, no, you, you have to understand this great thing that has just happened, or you had to be there to see the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire and the mighty wind. No, his defense was, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I love the Bible. I love the Bible for stuff like that. And the story goes on from there. But that's not our story this morning. So back to your regularly scheduled sermon. So I don't know about you, but I think one of the most terrifying things in the world is a blank Microsoft Word document. When there's nothing there but a white page and a blinking cursor. It scares the living daylights out of me. When I was in college or in grad school, around this time, around May, I would turn into a paper writing machine. I'd have a 10-page paper due for this class on this day, a 30-page paper due for this class on this topic, a 20-page paper, etc., etc. And while the topics changed and the page length changed and my interest level changed and my quality of writing changed with my interest level, one thing was constant. The hardest sentence to write in the whole paper was the first sentence. A lot of times people ask me, how long does it take to write a sermon? And the answer truly is, well, it depends. It depends on a lot of things. What season of the year we're in, where in a sermon series we are, is it the Easter sermon? But really what it truly depends on is how long does it take me to write that first sentence. Once I have that first sentence, it's only a matter of maybe an hour before I have the first page and then the rest kind of flows from there. But that first sentence, that can take days to find. Judging by the number of articles and blog posts and self-help books about how to write or how to be creative, I imagine I'm not the only one here who struggles with the blank word document or with writing the first sentence. But let me tell you this, we could have it a lot worse. I struggle with the first sentence of a term paper that would be read by a professor because he was paid to do it, or I'll struggle for a couple days on writing the first sentence on a sermon that will be heard by maybe a couple hundred people. I know there are some of you in here who write reports that are read by a lot of people, some important people, and that first sentence can be very tough to write, I'm sure. I imagine trying to write the first sentence of a State of the Union address or of an inaugural address is near impossible. But there is someone who had it worse. The one job that I wouldn't want, the blank document I wouldn't want to stare at, the first sentence I'd never want to have to construct is the scripture text before us this morning. Imagine, friends, if you had to write the first sentence to one of the Gospels. Now, isn't that daunting? 
How do you begin? Where do you start? How do you frame the story you're about to tell? You have the greatest story the world has ever heard. It's going to be read by literally millions of people, billions of people. How do you begin? Now, Mark was the first person assigned this task, and he took the easy way out. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark begins with a straightforward, simple topic sentence. Then Mark quotes some prophets and gets right into the narrative with an adult Jesus coming to see John the Baptist. Matthew came next, and his job was a little bit tougher because Mark had taken the easy way out. So Matthew gives a genealogy, starting with Abraham all the way to Joseph. And then we get a birth story about Jesus involving visions and wise men. Luke came around about the same time as Matthew, and Mark had stolen the simple topic sentence idea, and Matthew took the genealogy idea. So, but Luke was lucky in that he was asked to write his gospel by a wealthy patron. So his idea for how to start it is to address the wealthy patron and break the fourth wall. And then we get the birth story from Mary's perspective. And then we come to John. John really had it tough. His job was particularly difficult. The simple topic sentence idea was taken. Genealogies were played out. And the whole birth narrative had already been told. Oh, and the whole break the fourth wall and talk to your audience idea? Done. So if you're John, what do you do? What does that first sentence look like? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now, I don't know if the difficulty of the task inspired him to greatness. I don't know if God gave him a fresh revelation. Or if he was just the smartest, most created, and gifted writer in the New Testament. Probably all of the above. But what John gives us is beautiful, metaphysical, philosophical poetry. John gives us church music. But it's also admittedly a bit weird. John begins with philosophy, which is a bit ethereal. He begins with metaphysics, which is a bit confusing. He begins with poetry, which is always difficult. But it sets the tone for John's gospel. Right off the bat, we should have a pretty good idea that this gospel is going to be a bit different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have similar feels, similar tones. They tell similar stories, and they tell the stories in similar ways. Minor details might change, but on the whole, they give us a fairly unified picture of the life of Jesus. You can even read them together, and you'll find it interesting in how they are the same and in what details each individual writer tweaks and changes. See, I say you'll find it interesting because I find it interesting, but reasonable minds could differ on that, I suppose. Because you can read them together, and because in the religious studies world we like using words from dead languages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic is a Greek word meaning, well, you can read them together. 
But John starts his gospel off in a way that signals we are dealing with a different animal altogether. This won't be like any of the other gospels. This won't be something that you can read along with the others. This is going to sound different. Jesus might even sound different. Adam Hamilton, who's a Methodist pastor in Kansas, has said, If I look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're going to give me, I think, the most realistic account of what happened. But if I want to know what Jesus means, I'm going to go to the Gospel of John. Adam Hamilton talks about how if John is the last gospel written, and if it was written as it claims to be by someone who knew Jesus, who followed Jesus, who was a disciple of Jesus, then the gospel is written at the end of a life spent meditating on what Jesus meant. So we get these deep theological ideas in the gospel of John. Whereas the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, might call us to outward action, The Gospel of John calls us inward to consider what Christ means to us personally. And it calls us to consider, beginning with the prologue, what Christ means for all of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. On the whole, I find this to be beautiful and moving. But if we start unpacking it, we see the depth of meaning and the illusions and the layers that John is creating. In the beginning, John begins his gospel with the same words that begin the Bible. In the beginning. John is taking us back to creation. His account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth won't begin with an adult Jesus or with the parents of Jesus or even with Abraham. Instead, John says that this Jesus story goes back all the way to creation because Jesus was there with God in the creation of the world. Jesus was God in the creation of the world and that everything that has been made was made through him. But John is also talking about new creation. In the beginning in Genesis describes God's creation of the world, and in the beginning at the start of the Jesus story is about God's recreation of that world. Unless you think I'm just making stuff up. This pops up in other places in the Gospel of John as well. In John, Jesus performs seven miraculous signs, and John numbers them. Why why does he do this? Well, seven corresponds to the number of days in creation. So each miracle corresponds to a day of creation. But those seven signs don't include Jesus' ultimate miraculous sign, which is being raised from the dead, which is the eighth miraculous sign. Or put another way, It is the miracle that corresponds to the eighth day of creation or the first day of the new creation. But why do we need to talk about new creation? Why is that necessary? John tells us that in the next two verses. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Immediately, John switches gears and mentions darkness. He doesn't dwell on it, and he doesn't explain it, but it's there. 
John simply needs to name it, and that is enough. That's because we all know that the darkness exists, and we know what it is. We are reminded of it every day when we watch the news, when we hear of people being murdered, of children being murdered, when we hear about kids who go to bed hungry, when we see the brokenness in our own communities, our own families, when we are brought face to face with the brokenness of our own souls, of our own psyches. We know that police officers shouldn't be shot and killed simply for patrolling our neighborhoods. We know that a firefighter shouldn't be bullied into taking her own life. We know that our teenagers shouldn't be raised to think that they're unworthy of love or of dignity or of respect. And we know that there is something deeply, seriously wrong with the world that we live in. We know that there is darkness. And yet the gospel, the revelation, the word of God spoken into our world and lives today is that in Christ there was life, and that life was the light to all of humanity, and that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. When I was in seminary, I interned at a church that had a tenebrae service on Good Friday, which is something that a lot of churches do. Tenebrae means darkness because in the church we like to use words from dead languages. We'd read a piece of the passion story, the story of Christ's arrest, trial, and crucifixion. We'd sing a hymn about that story, and we'd take something from the altar area like a candlestick or the communion cup out of the sanctuary, and then we'd dim the lights a little. As you tell, and as you tell more and more of the story, the altar becomes more and more stripped down, more and more bare, and the sanctuary becomes darker and darker until the story is over. Jesus is dead, and the room is in total darkness. And in that darkness, you think about the darkness of our world, the darkness that led Jesus to die on the cross, the darkness that still causes senseless acts of violence in our world. You think about how that darkness has infected your own life, your own soul. You think about all the bad things that you do that put a little bit more darkness into this world. And then sitting there, in the darkness, surrounded by darkness, you notice a little bit of light. Not a lot of light. It's not a flood. No one's turned the lights on. Just a little bit. Making its way from the back of the sanctuary to the front. It's a single candle. And that single candle is the hope we have that Easter is coming the light shining in the darkness. The darkness is still present, but it can't overcome even that little bit of light. Even in the darkness of our lives, even in the darkness in our world, the light shines. We see the light shining in the darkness throughout Scripture. God delivers the Israelites from slavery makes a covenant with them, and gives them the law so that they can be righteous. The light shines. God raises up judges to call the people back to obedient living and to ward off the threats of the Canaanites. The light shines. God raises up kings and prophets to rule over the people. The light shines. The light shines in our world. God speaks into the hearts of ordinary people who do extraordinary acts of love. When we look at Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, the light shines. 
when we look at those in our community who love selflessly, the kindergarten teacher who embodies love, the little league coach who exudes encouragement, the person in the community who makes it not just a place to live, but home, the light shines. The light shines in our lives. In those moments when we are kind and loving and our best selves, the people who call us to be better, who love us into being more grace-filled, when we experience happiness and joy, when we have hope and faith, the light shines. And we know that God is active in our world, calling out to us, coaxing us, leading us to shine brighter, to let more light into the world, to fight against the darkness. The light is shining into our world. But great as that is, our gospel message is more than that. We are going to skip down a little bit to the end of the prologue, where in verse 14, John says that the word, the word that was the light, and the light was life to all mankind, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among, among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, in my senior year of college, I took first year Greek. Senior year of college, first year Greek. I am not the brightest bulb in the pack. Class met every day at nine in the morning. Apparently, I did not want to enjoy my senior year. And the thing is, I don't remember any of it, except for a couple words. But one of those words is tent. I remember the Greek word for tent. Because for whatever reason, the soldiers always seem to be doing something in te skene, in the tent asked the writer of my Greek book. Now, I tell you that because there is a derivative of this word tent, skene, in this verse, which means that there are a couple of things going on here. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's a more literal way of translating what the Greek says. And I'm going to get theological for a sec. I apologize. In the Old Testament, God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then the Israelites wander into the wilderness for a generation. During their wandering, God gives them the Ten Commandments, which are put inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is that thing the Nazis were looking for in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just when they open it, look away. And whenever the company would make camp, they would construct a tent called the Tabernacle, which would be the house of the Ark of the Covenant, and the tabernacle was considered the dwelling place of the presence of God. So when John says that the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us, we could also say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and that Jesus is the new tabernacle. But I'm not done. So when the Israelites have the tabernacle, that is the dwelling place of God's presence, and they wander through the wilderness. When they conquer the promised land, they build the city Jerusalem and construct the temple. And there are a couple iterations of this temple, but the temple becomes the new dwelling place of God's presence. So we have gone from tabernacle to temple. But when the gospel of John was written, the temple had been destroyed, which was a huge blow to Jewish identity. Where then was the presence of God dwelling? That's a question that haunted the minds of religious people when John was writing his gospel and was a present question and anxiety for them. John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ is where the presence of God is. 
tabernacle, temple, Jesus Christ. But there's another layer going on in this simple phrase. Because clearly John is talking about Jesus when he says the word became flesh, but he doesn't specifically mention Jesus. What if John is saying two things at once? And this is where I think pitching a tent is a really helpful image. Because you can make a dwelling place by buying a plot of land and constructing a house that will wall you off from your neighbors, but that's not pitching a tent. When you pitch a tent, you go to land that may or may not be yours. It might be the backyard, but if you're a kid pitching a tent in the backyard, that backyard's not your land as much as you think it is. It's your parents' land. It's probably the bank's land, but that's okay. You go to the wilderness and you pitch a tent, you're just, you're just taking up space. You're claiming space for yourself and for your dwelling. You go to a park, you go to the woods, you go to your backyard, and you set up shop. And this is kind of the new movement of God that I think John is getting at. Before we had the light shining, but what if now God is going to pitch a tent God pitches a tent in our world in Jesus Christ. But what if some, somehow John is also saying that now the light isn't going to just shine, but God's word is going to come into your life, come into your heart, and pitch a tent. Set up shop. Claim you. Now this is a new step of intimacy. God isn't over there and us over here. Instead, God is going to bridge that space. God's going to bridge that distance. God's going to come over here and into here. God's going to become a human being like one of us. God going, God's going to experience our life, experience our mess, experience our happiness and joy and sorrow and pain. God's going to join us. And then God's going to take a further step of intimacy by not just being one human being among other human beings separated by our bodies, but God is going to come into our hearts. God no longer wants to just shine and guide. He wants to pitch a tent in the middle of your life, in the middle of your heart, in the middle of your soul. God wants to do this. God wants to come into your life and to pitch a tent with his light and his life. Will you let him? If you want that. If you want God to come into your life in a real and powerful and intimate way, then this sermon series is for you. John's gospel is about looking at Jesus and discovering the light and life of God in him. And then it is about discovering how that light and that life can come into you as well. So I want to invite you to read the gospel of John, if you need one. We got them for free. And hey, if you already have a Gospel of John, if you already have the whole Bible, well, take one of these anyway and give it to somebody who needs to read it, who needs to read about the light and life that Jesus can bring into their heart and their life. Commercial over. But I want to invite you to read the Gospel of John with us over the next few weeks and discover the light and the life of God in Jesus Christ. Because that same life, and that same life can dwell in your heart as well, can pitch a tent in your life as well. You can be filled with the light and life of God as you discover God's light and life in Jesus Christ. Simply put, we're going to look at the Gospel of John to discover what Jesus means. And, we're, and in doing so, I hope we can discover what Jesus means to us.
Let us pray. Almighty and all-living God, you came into this world. You became flesh and you dwelt among us. You pitched the tent right in the middle of our mess. And you want to do the same again. You want to come into our lives. You want to set up shop in our hearts. We want you there, God. We do. So God, come into our hearts, come into our lives in powerful ways, in transformative ways, in moving ways. Help change us from the inside. For we know that the darkness that exists in our world has come into us as well. So shine your light and life into our, our hearts. Bring your light and life into our hearts so that we can be cleansed of the darkness that's within and so that we can go from this place into a world to shine your light more brightly in a world that still seems stuck in darkness. And God, if there are any here for the first time who have never had you pitch a tent in their heart, but who think maybe they need your light and your life, give them the grace to say yes to you. Give them the strength to say yes to you. Give them the courage to follow. All this we pray in the name of the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.